evening, everyone. Welcome to Stewart Observatory on a beautiful, clear autumn night in Tucson, Arizona, which means the telescope is open and will be open for public viewing at the conclusion of tonight's lecture. We also like to welcome those of you who are viewing this podcast on iTunes U via the World Wide Web. Uh, I would invite you, if you haven't seen our schedule yet, to pick up a flyer at the back of the room when you leave. It lists all of the lectures that we have scheduled for this semester, as well as on the back some of the two remaining public lectures from the Lunar and Planetary Laboratory. They're having public lectures on the first Wednesdays of the month. Um, if you are a student here for an assignment, I am the person who will validate your assignment with this stamp. And I will do that at the conclusion of the question and answer period. And uh, again, when the lecture is over, it's the white building next door with the big white dome on top. Feel free to climb up two flights of stairs. And there's a beautiful crescent moon out there that you can look out through the telescope, plus other interesting objects. But tonight, we are pleased to present Professor Edward Olszewski from Stewart Observatory. Ed received his bachelor's degree in physics from the Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Do you know what city that's in? Troy, New York, yes. He then received his PhD from the University of Washington, which is in Seattle, in, in astronomy. Uh, he did a postdoc at the Dominion Astrophysical Observatory, which is in Victoria, on Vancouver Island in British Columbia. And after two years at DAO, he came here sometime in the mid-1980s as a postdoc to the late, great Professor Mark Aronson. And he stayed ever since. He is now a professor here at the University of Arizona. And one of the things, he does many things at this observatory, but one of the things he's best known for, he was the principal investigator of an instrument called 90 Prime. When Stewart Observatory started building these really big telescopes at our mirror lab, our 90-inch telescope on Kitt Peak became a small telescope. And about 20 years ago, uh, it was through Ed's inspiration and hard work that we kept the 90-inch telescope on Kitt Peak a productive instrument by installing a prime focus camera. So the camera is up there where the secondary mirror should be. You get a wider field of view, and a lot of good science has been done and is continued, will continue in the future to be done with the 90 primes, what we call it, that camera. But tonight, Ed is going to talk to you about something that you can't observe from the 90-inch telescope on Kitt Peak. Uh, he's also spent a lot of time in Chile using the big telescopes that we have access to down there. And he's going to give us a talk on our two neighbor galaxies, the large and the small Magellanic Clouds. So I call upon Professor Edward Olszewski to talk on the topic, Modern Changing Views of the Magellanic Clouds. Okay, so as Tom said, I've been here ever since. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> then I can stay. Um, the second thing is, when I was in my formative years at RPI, um, our hockey team beat Cornell. You might know someone from Cornell in this audience. <laughs> <laughs> and 
to show you that there really is a God of hockey anyway, my first year in Tucson, I'm channel surfing and I come upon the championship NCAA hockey game and it was RPI against someone and RPI won. So a little engineering school of 5,000 people plays division one hockey and won the national championship at least twice now. Okay, so that's me, Edward Olszewski. Um, I'm probably not going to mention very many of my collaborators and competitors by name, but um, you'll have to trust me that I know who they are. And I also want to just give special thanks to my long ago dissertation advisor. I got my PhD in 1982, Paul Hodge, who knows more about the Magellanic Clouds than all the rest of us put together. For unfathomable reasons, the remote mouse, although it worked this afternoon, isn't working anymore. Okay, so I want to start with a little bit of history and show you some pictures. So at the very beginning, I'll go through a couple of slides and then turn out the lights and show you some pictures. Um, I want to note that John Herschel, William Herschel's son, William Herschel discovered Uranus and um, was an oboe player in the King's Band in England and things like that. John Herschel was one of the first people to go, first English people, to go to the Southern Hemisphere and keep a diary of his observations. You know, Herschel was the precursor to the NGC catalog or the general catalog, the GC catalog before it became the NGC. And going to the Rare Book Library and looking through his books is a, is a pretty cool thing to do. Okay. Let's start by saying Magellan didn't name his clouds, nor did Magellan's navigator. There was actually a guy on his boat who was there just for the thrills, except he was one of the 10% or so who made it back alive. He was just there for the thrills who championed this name. Until the 1850s, they were called by their Latin names. Um, I'm going to steal a page from, or a page of my stuff from Wikipedia here, um, and I'll just quickly read it. And, you know, the Magellanic Clouds were known to the Polynesians and to all the Aboriginal peoples of the Southern Hemisphere. Um, and the Magellanic Clouds have been known in Western civilization, so the Greeks, that kind of thing, in, um, since the first millennium. So they've been known for about a thousand years. Um, 964, in his books of um, fixed stars, al-Sufi, pointed them out. And it turns out you can see them from the southern tip of Arabia. You can see them from Hawaii just barely. And in Europe, they were actually observed in the 1400s, not from Europe, of course, from European um, explorers. And subsequently, they were reported by this guy, Pigafetta, who accompanied Magellan as a thrill seeker. Now, going around the world in the 1500s was probably a thrill without having to go, you know, going from here to Africa was hard enough, or, you know, from, from England to Africa was hard enough. Why, why anyone would be a thrill seeker to go around the world is incomprehensible. Um, but until the uh, mid-1800s, for instance, in Bayer's Uranometria, they are called Nubecula Major and Nubecula Minor. And in the 1756 star map of Lakai, they're designated as Le Grand Nuage and Le Petit Nuage. So the big cloud and the little cloud. And they weren't called the Magellanic Clouds till after that. 
So it kind of reminds me of the present time when you, we go perfectly fine through life without the word supermoon. And now, since all weathermen learned the supermoon, we're stuck with it for eternity. <laughs> terrible, terrible, terrible thing. And maybe someone feels that we should still be calling them Nubecula minor and Nubecula major. Okay, so now I'm going to show you a few slides of some modern photos to set our place here. And one photo that I managed to find online, it was harder than I thought, from Harvard from about 1900, and one sketch by John Herschel, not of the whole Magellanic Clouds, but of a piece of it, from about 1850. So for a brief period of time, I'm going to turn the lights down. And we'll turn them back up later. This is um, Axel Mellinger's, who's a, a crazed amateur, the best kind. And this is, of course, a photo of the Milky Way. So here's the disk of the Milky Way. Here's the galactic center in this region. You can see the dust clouds. And you can see the large cloud and the small cloud. And so when you go to the southern hemisphere, and if you haven't gone, Find an excuse to go to Chile. Find an excuse to go to Australia. Find an excuse to go to South Africa and see them on a dark, moonless night for yourself. They're incredible. And, but you can kind of see, and this picture doesn't really do this idea justice, that you can kind of pretend that a little chunk fell off of the Milky Way and it didn't quite get glued back into place. So this is the large Magellanic Cloud. This is the small Magellanic Cloud. And see, right next to the small Magellanic Cloud is the globular cluster 47 Tuck. I don't remember who that is. This is Canopus, the second brightest star in the sky. And from the southern hemisphere, at least to my eye, Canopus and Sirius are pretty much the same brightness. I know they're different, but you know, the human eye isn't actually really good without a lot of aid at telling 10% kind of changes. In 1973, De Vaucouleur and Freeman published a study of of dwarf irregular galaxies. And what struck me at the time, you know, I started grad school in 1974, what struck me at the time were these photos. So these are basically with camera lenses and of course with film. And some of this white stuff is because I digitized it on the photocopier out of a book and not everything's perfect, but this is 40 degrees in one axis, I guess up and down, and 30 degrees left and right. And you can see the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud separated by about 20 degrees on the sky. And, you know, if you do a circle like this, that's kind of what you would think of as the size of the large Magellanic Cloud. And that's going to be an important part of my talk. And, you know, you would draw a smaller circle for the small Magellanic Cloud. Later on in the talk, I'll actually show you that the LMC extends at least out to here, and the SMC extends at least out to here, and maybe they touch and maybe they don't, in stars. So this is with a camera lens. It's not even a particularly fast by modern standards camera lens. So if you took your DSLR and a camera lens and a tripod, you could you know, do the equivalent of this. And by the way, at the distance of the Magellanic Clouds, which I'll, I'll get to in a little bit, at the distance of the Magellanic Clouds, one degree, so we said it's 40 by 30 degrees, is um, 
about a kiloparsec, that means a thousand parsecs, and a parsec is about three light years. So one degree is about 3,000 light years. Just so that you, know, you have some idea of scale. And they're about 50 kiloparsecs or 150,000 light years away from the Milky Way. Okay, here's um, a more modern photo of the LMC. And you can see some of the things we know and love. You have the bar of the LMC. This is um, 30 Doradus. So that's where, that's the biggest star forming region that's, you know, local to us. If we go farther out to Andromeda, there are equally big ones. And this one over 1987A was right about there. And this is, a th the smile here is an object called Constellation 3. But this is, you know, there's no scale bar here, but this is only about three or four degrees on the side. So you think of this, I mean, that means it's three or 4,000 parsecs, and the Milky Way is probably 50 or 100,000 parsecs if you had to put a, a size to the Milky Way. And we'll come back to that. So the LMC, people call it a dwarf galaxy. I rebel against that. It's a small, big galaxy and a big, small galaxy. It's about one-tenth the mass of the Milky Way. Okay, this is a Harvard plate from 1900. And there are two things on this plate. One is, there's the bar of the LMC again, and there's 30 Doradus. And all of these little marks are on the back of the plate. So this is a piece of glass with photographic emulsion on one side. And what astronomers up to about 1980 did was they could mark things on the back side, the pure glass side. And this is from Henrietta Leavitt's markings of variable stars in the Large Magellanic Cloud, which I'll tell you a little bit more about later. And the quotation here comes out of the, a piece of the Harvard website, and it says this plate was taken on December 18, 1900 from Peru. So Harvard had a station in Peru, and they had a station in South Africa. And you would go down there, or you know, they would have slaves down there, who would then package up the plates and put them on a boat, and they would go back to Harvard, where they would then be measured by other slaves. And those particular slaves were called girls. And, or they had a nicer name than that. They called them computers. But, and um, because remember at Harvard in the year 1900, girls could not get advanced degrees. Okay, anyway, this is, you know, out in the outskirts, she was able to identify variable stars by looking at plate after plate after plate after plate, night after night after night. And those are some of them. And you can see this was taken, this was a big telescope at the time. This is an eight-inch telescope in Peru. Okay, back to de Vaucouleur. These next two plates are of the large magnetic cloud printed to two different densities. So in modern speak, we change the ISO setting on our DSLR. So this is to show the bright inner parts and this is to show the faint outer parts with the bright inner parts being overexposed. If we go back to this photo, you know, it's sideways compared to some of the other ones I showed you. There's the bar, there's 30 Doradus, and there's Constellation 3. And again, this, they say this field is 16 by 20, so this is 16, you know, it's about a third of that, so three or four or five degrees on the side. When you print 
to show the faintest objects and who cares about the bright objects, you see that there's a lot of light coming from the large Magellanic cloud. Now, de Vaucouleur got carried away, and he sees spiral structure and all kinds of things that don't exist. But that's okay. It still shows you that, you know, if you go deeper, there's more stuff to be learned. And we probably have to reevaluate our notion of how big the large Magellanic cloud is. Okay, here's yet another photo, a high contrast negative, so we can really see the faint stuff. And he was enamored of these faint nebulosities. But let me go back for a moment, three or four slides, or six or ten, this to this one. You'll notice that here's the Malachi Magellanic Cloud, and in one direction, we're in the halo of the Milky Way, or, you know, as seen from Earth. And so there aren't very many Milky Way stars in the way. There's not very much gas and dust. In the other direction, going up, we start to run into the plane of the Milky Way, and there's all kinds of Milky Way crap. And the Milky Way crap consists of lots of Milky Way stars, pain in the neck, lots of Milky Way gas, and a thing called cirrus, which is mostly visible in the infrared. It's wisps of thin gas clouds pretty much everywhere. So I think that this stuff that de Vaucouleur was so enamored of down here is we're just starting to run to Milky Way junk. Okay, this is a small Magellanic cloud. And it's smaller. You can't, of course, you know, it's half or a third the size or half or a third of the mass of the large Magellanic cloud. And this is the globular cluster, naked eye globular cluster 47 Tacani. And this is the galactic globular cluster NGC 362. And, you know, again, you can see there are star forming regions and there are clusterings of bright stars. And there's sort of a faint, faintish thing that you might describe as halo. Okay, so we'll go back to de Vaucouleur again. And now, he says here the limiting magnitude is only 14th. So you're only seeing the absolutely brightest stars in the large Magellanic cloud. You know, he's taking this with a glorified camera lens or a very small telescope. And this looks, at least qualitatively, like that. But of course, it's flipped left and right anyway. It's actually flipped both left and right and up and down. But when we print it to show the fainter structure, you know, you can kind of see, you know, there's a lot of light up here that um, belongs to the small Magellanic Cloud. In fact, if we go back here for a second, the small Magellanic Cloud, at least in this direction, reaches all the way out to 47 Tuck. They're, they're not in the same distance, so they're just superposed in two dimensions, but that's how far out it reaches, and you wouldn't get that from this photo. And in fact, you wouldn't get that from this photo. And this is a modern photo, it goes deeper, so you can see fainter stars, but you don't really, you can't really see the extent. Because the problem with galaxies, the farther out you go, the fewer and fewer stars they have per square or per, per cubic something. So the density of stars drops off. So they get harder and harder to see the faint outer regions. Okay, so here's Herschel's diary. This is one page of it that I scanned. And he's got two sketches here. This sketch 
is of the galaxy Centaur Se, and I'll show you a modern picture of that in a second. And this is of the 30 Doradus region of the LMC. He had a, what they called a 20-foot telescope, but that refers to the focal length, basically, you know, where he sat compared to where the mirror was. And I forget how big around it was. It probably wasn't any bigger than that. So he's got these two sketches, and they, remark, they remind me remarkably of Astro 100 sketches when we make them go up to the 21-inch and sketch a star cluster or something like that. It's really miserably hard work to do sketching unless you're super diligent and actually pretty darn good at it. Try sketching the moon tonight. It's really, really, really hard. Okay, so he's got those two photos, or those two sketches. This is the LMC, and this red thing up, sorry, I can't see it when I'm that close. This thing here is the 30-door region, so let me blink back and forth. What do you think? Did he capture the essence of that? And here's Centaur Se, which is a giant elliptical galaxy with a dust lane going across it. I think he captured the essence of that one, Come on. He's got this blob with a, with a dust lane. So that's all another way of saying, you know, progress was really hard back then with small telescopes and, you know, not a, I mean, your cell phone behind a telescope does a much better job now than they could have done with the equipment they had. But in the, in the late 1800s, if you go back, say, to this picture, People looking through telescopes realized that the Large Magellanic Cloud was a very complicated place. It had star clusters in it. It had gas clouds in it. It had dust lanes in it. It had, you know, and, and people hypothesized. They turned out to be correct, but with basically no evidence. They hypothesized that this was a separate system from the Milky Way. It was a thing like the Milky Way. Now, we had to wait 70 years for actual physical confirmation of those kind of ideas. People talk about island universes going back to the philosophers of the Middle Ages, but you know, we, all, we only remember their correct, or their hypotheses that turned out to be true later. We forgot all of their hypotheses that turned out to be completely bogus. Okay, so I, I forgot to bring a prop well, let's see what we got for props. I was going to bring some compact disks. Okay, so let's pick a size for the Milky Way. You know, I'm, you know the sun is 25,000 light years from the center. So maybe somewhere I can make the Milky Way 50,000 light years across. Maybe 100,000 light years across. I don't actually care. So here, you're the Milky Way. And the Andromeda galaxy is two and a half million light years away. So the Andromeda galaxy is somewhere over, well, here. And, well, this is way too big. I've got to find something smaller. I guess I'll use my bottle cap. The Magellanic clouds would be kind of, twist it that way. Okay. The Magellanic clouds would be kind of down here. This is too big. It's not anatomically correct. But they would be kind of down here. And they would be one-tenth the size of this, so one one-hundredth the volume, and the other one would be even smaller. And in fact, later we'll learn that, as far as we know, the Magellanic Clouds have come in from outer space on a trajectory like this to end up where they are right now. 
So, you know, space is pretty empty. Even though someday, in a few billion years, that guy's going to collide with this guy, um, space is pretty empty. Thank you. So, so if you were looking at the Milky Way from far, far away, how big would it be? Let me finish that story. The radius of the solar circle, 25,000 light years, gets you out to, um, well, let me show you this picture first. This is an infrared photo of the Milky Way taken with um, the COBE satellite. And in this photo, here's the center of the Milky Way. So this is kind of like you're looking from outside the Milky Way edge on. Um, but you, you see some of those pictures, from the, the picture from Axel Mellinger, this looks remarkably the same. The sun is right about here. So 25,000 times two isn't really big enough. Maybe we double that. Maybe doubling that is too much and we're really kind of getting into the noise. So, you know, that's, if you look at a picture, that's what you get. But, what, you know, the real question we want to know is how big are these darn things and how much do they weigh? Boy, one of the many things we want to know is that. And in a normal photo, M31 is about three degrees or about 200,000 light years across. And it's a, perhaps a little bit bigger than the Milky Way. So, you know, these numbers of 50,000 times two for the Milky Way is probably just about right. And when you look at those LMC-SMC photos, um, you know, we get some number like three or four times 1,000. So 4,000 kiloparsecs equals 12,000 light years. So on this scale, the, Milky, the LMC, you know, would be the kind of inner part here but many fewer stars. That's why some people call them dwarf galaxies. It's about 10 times fainter than the Milky Way and has about 10 times fewer stars and actually about 10 times less mass. Okay, now, the Magellanic Clouds have played a very, very, very important role in, since the year 1900 in understanding the extragalactic distance scale. And now we go back to Henrietta Leavitt again. In, remember, these plates come from the far corners of the world, eight-inch telescopes that Harvard bought and put various places. And they come back to Harvard, where the director of Harvard assigns the chores to various of these human computers. And Henrietta Leavitt's job was to find all the variable stars. You know, so she has many multiple plates, because variable stars go up and down in brightness over time, to find the variable stars, to deduce their periods, and to basically make a catalog. But she did something terrible, 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 terrible. She thought. And what she discovered, and I'll show you her um, sketch on, on the next slide, what she discovered was that, well, I've got all these variable stars, and, and the variables have a shape to their light curve that we call Cepheids. And so other kinds of variables look different. And these Cepheid variables, the weird thing was that the longer it takes them to pulsate, so the star is actually going like this, the longer it takes them to pulsate, the brighter they are intrinsic, or the brighter they are. So a Cepheid that takes 100 days to pulsate on her photographs is brighter than a Cepheid that takes 10 days to pulsate. So let me jump ahead half a slide here, and here are her diagrams. The one on the left is plotted in linear scale, so the period in days and the apparent brightness. The one on the right is plotted in a logarithmic scale. But basically, 
Here's a 20-day Cepheid. At maximum light, it reaches 13 in these units. And a 100-day Cepheid is about 11 and a half in these units. So 100-day Cepheids are brighter than 10-day Cepheids. And this is really, really, really good. She didn't get credit for it. In fact, the sad story is some European realized how brilliant this discovery was and nominated her for the Nobel Prize a year or two after she died because they didn't know she was dead. And anyway, she discovered that the apparent, which means to her eyes or to the photograph that she took, the apparent average or peak brightness of a short period Cepheid, so less days to pulsate, was fainter than that of a long period Cepheid. Now, if we knew the intrinsic brightness of any one Cepheid in the entire universe, then we could calibrate her diagram so it would no longer be in apparent properties, and we could then say that a 100-day Cepheid has an intrinsic brightness of such and such. Intrinsic brightness, the way I describe it in Astro 100, is if you take a star and you put a sphere around it and capture all the light. That's the intrinsic brightness. Apparent brightness is what you see from Earth or from any other place in the universe. So what was needed to be done is to measure the distances to any Cepheid. And then you could say, you know, you could use the intrinsic brightness and the apparent brightness to back out the distance. It's like when you're driving a car. You are driving down the road and you see a really faint thing ahead and you say, that car is really far away because its headlight is beaming at me and it's really faint. And as that car gets closer and closer, apparently it gets brighter and brighter. But of course, intrinsically, nothing is changing. But the difference between the intrinsic brightness and the apparent brightness is a measure of the distance. Okay, so wouldn't it be nice if we knew the distance to the Magellanic Clouds? Or wouldn't it be nice if we knew the distance to any Cepheid variable star in the Milky Way? And once we do that, we have this incredibly powerful relation. Finding periods when you have a bunch of photos of variable stars is actually pretty easy. It's a lot easier than the other kinds of measurements you might want to make. So once we know the period, we know the intrinsic brightness, so we get that for free, and we can measure the apparent brightness and out pops the distance. And one of the reasons, one of the great successes of the Hubble Space Telescope key project was to measure the size scale of the universe using Cepheid variables and then later using supernovae. And Cepheid variables play another role, which is Hubble found Cepheids in the Andromeda galaxy, remember, which was over here in, with my little stick figure diagram. And the Andromeda galaxy was the first extragalactic thing for which we you know, had a really good distance and we could say it's way farther away than the Milky Way is big. So the hypothesis that the Milky Way was the entire universe or that everything was in the Milky Way fell apart and the modern extragalactic world came into being. Okay, so HST stands on the shoulders of Henrietta Leavitt. Okay, now, let me just do one more thing about Cepheids. In the 1950s, an Indiana astronomer named John Irwin discovered Cepheids in a Milky Way cluster. So we can now get the distances to those Cepheids. And just as an aside, because it's a very interesting side, is Irwin retired to Tucson and attended talks all the way, almost until his death. He died in 1997 at the age of 88. 
And he was also known in the Tucson Hiking Club and was written up by Pete Cowgill in the local newspaper for climbing Mount Whitney on his 80th and 85th birthdays. So he was an amazing fellow with you know, a grasp of the first two-thirds of the 20th century of astronomers. He once gave a talk called Astronomers of the 1950s. And I thought, oh my God, this is the most boring thing I've ever heard. But it was photos taken at American Astronomical Society meetings of the gods of astronomy when they were kids. So it was really great. Okay, now, coming up, it's actually taking science data now, but the first data release is, I think, in the summer of 2016, the European Gaia satellite will be the first telescope to directly measure a geometric distance to a Cepheid by using the method called parallax. And you remember parallax is if I hold my thumb out and I close one eye, I can see where my thumb looks against the background. And then I change eyes and my thumb appears to go like that. That's parallax. Gaia is so sensitive in measuring positions that it can actually measure the parallax of a Cepheid. And so, you know, astronomers are always happy when we can go back to the good old surveying. So the farther out you can survey, the less assumptions are built into the distance scale. Okay, one last major historical fact, then we'll get into cool new stuff. In, the, in World War II, radar was developed. And simultaneously, in occupied Netherlands, the astronomers had nothing to do. You know, they basically only had two choices. One was to join the resistance, and the other was to sit in their offices and quietly do science, and some chose each route. Um, and radio telescopes came into being in the 1950s, and the Dutch scientists had hypothesized that you could actually see with a radio telescope, you could see hydrogen gas. It's through what we call the spin flip of the electron in its lowest energy level in hydrogen. But they actually made the calculation and said, even though this is rare, there's a lot of hydrogen in galaxies. And sure enough, we could start mapping out galaxies in their most abundant thing, the thing that's going to get turned into stars, the hydrogen. So then in the early 1970s, in using rather small radio telescopes in Australia, scientists pointed at the Magellanic Clouds and over many, many pointings, discovered a very interesting piece of the Magellanic Clouds, which will prove to have an important role called the Magellanic Stream. So this is a stream of hydrogen. Let me show that one first. This is an artist's sketch. So, you know, all of the, you know, first of all, you can't see this with your naked eye. You have to see it in hydrogen. So I guess if you had hydrogen eyeglasses, you could see this. But this is way too bright compared to this. So, you know, you have to think of it as much, much more ghostly. So here are the two Magellanic clouds, and there's this huge stream of hydrogen coming out like this. And there's also a stream of hydrogen going out like this in this direction. And as I told you before in the stick figure thing, the Magellanic clouds apparently are coming in from way out here somewhere, kind of like that. But we didn't know that in the 1950s. So you have to explain, wh why is there all this hydrogen gas in a big, long tail? Well, you can kind of think of a couple of ways. You know, what makes big, long tails in outer space? One is it's gravity. So the tide of the Milky Way can pull things out into a tail. 
So maybe these things are so close to the Milky Way that even though they're not being dramatically affected, they're being affected enough that we can pull some of the gas out. Another hypothesis is it turns out that the halo of the Milky Way is filled with a very, very, very thin, very, very, very hot gas. And that hot gas can actually, as you're, you know, this is like being in a sailboat, you're going along like this and you feel the wind. Well, imagine when the clouds are going along like that and they feel this pressure from this very diffuse hot gas. So it's being what we call ram pressure stripped out. So those are you know, two hypotheses. But any model you make of what the Magellanic Clouds have been doing has to try to reproduce the Magellanic Stream. And as I said, this was discovered in the 1950s, so it's 60 years later, and we're still, we're getting closer, I guess, but we're still not 100% sure we have the exact right answer. But the answer is somewhere in between the two ones I told you about. It's either gravity or ram pressure stripping or other. Okay, so let me just review a couple of the ideas. The Magellanic clouds are part of the fundamental extragalactic distance scale. So everything we know about the age of the universe, everything we know about the accelerating universe ultimately goes back to Henry Levitt in the early 1900s and to people like John Irwin in the 1950s to establish the Cepheid distance scale. There's been an enormous more, more work since then. Okay, second is galaxies are much bigger than they look. So you might ask the question, how big? Well, in my first year of grad school, my very first assignment in galactic astronomy was to review a paper out of the Astrophysical Journal Letters about the mass and size of the Milky Way. And I didn't know what I was doing. But the upshot of that paper was that the farther out you look, and you have to have some tracer of measuring the gravity, but the farther out you look, the more massive it gets. And of course, that's the idea. You know, the farther out you look, the less stars there are. And if the farther out you look, the more masses there is, that means something else is going on. And that's part of the dark matter idea. But basically, any tracer you have, so imagine you put, you, know, you can't do this, of course, but imagine you put a satellite in orbit at various distances farther and farther and farther away. You know, they should, if there was, if all the mass in the Milky Way were at the center, the, the speeds would drop off. But if the speeds kind of remain the same, the mass has to keep going up and up and up and up. And that's the conundrum we've had since actually the 1930s, depending on how you count, but since the 1970s. Okay, the next thing is the large Magellanic Cloud and the small Magellanic Cloud are pretty close to the Milky Way. If they're close, maybe they've interacted, and we already laid that idea down with the Magellanic Extreme. How did the Magellanic Extreme get there? They interacted. And have they always been that close? In fact, until 10 years ago, the best measurements told us that the Magellanic Clouds were in orbit about the Milky Way, you know, of course, for all eternity. They were in orbit about the Milky Way, and they go about around the Milky Way about once every two billion years. And since the universe is 14 billion years old, that means they've had seven orbits, and they've had lots of chance for the Milky Way to beat them up gravitationally. Now, that's probably wrong. Okay, now, to lay the groundwork for that, I mean, the cool thing about science, one of the cool things about being a scientist is wrong is a nice word because 
if you can show something's wrong, you're that one step closer to figuring out what's right. Anyway, let's practice the poem. Big fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them, and little fleas have lesser fleas, and so on ad infinitum. Okay, now there's a rationale for this silly poem. At least, this is my rationale for the silly poem. And I'm going to show you an evolution of structure movie. So this was done by Matthias Steinmetz, who used to be a member of our faculty before getting a super job in Europe. And Matthias does evolution of structure, which means he starts with our best model for what the universe was like a really long time ago, which was really smooth, but not quite unsmooth at the one part in 100,000 level. And then he turns gravity on, he turns time on, and watches how structure is made. So what I'm going to show you, and I'm going to turn the lights down again, what I'm going to show you is this movie, which goes from a redshift of 20, which means something like 13 billion years ago, to a redshift of about zero, which means now. And what, and what you're going to see in the center, eventually, is a galaxy like the Milky Way. And watch how the Milky Way is built up. Lights, lights. I'll just... So places where there's a little bit of extra mass means a little bit of extra gravity, and it pulls stuff in. Places where there's a little bit less mass ends up being voids. And now we're closing in on a box to watch that thing that's going to become the Milky Way. And Six billion years ago, it's still strongly interacting with things flying in from outer space. Three billion years ago, it's still interacting with smaller things flying in from outer space. Two billion years ago, look, there's some more small things flying in from outer space, and they eventually get eaten by the Milky Way. Of course, you know, doing some damage to the disk of the Milky Way. So this Milky Way galaxy is built up. And in fact, from 10 billion years ago or 6 billion years ago to now, the mass of the Milky Way has approximately doubled. So we like to think of galaxies as being island universes. We like to think of galaxies as being kind of eternal. But the Milky Way has changed a lot in the last 5 to 10 billion years. It's almost doubled in mass. And it keeps undergoing these collisions of smaller things. And that's simply due to the initial conditions in the early universe plus gravity. So the idea here is galaxies of any size, but big galaxies, to make the point clear, big galaxies are built up by eating littler galaxies and by regular old gas just streaming in. But they eat galaxies for breakfast. Right now, our Milky Way you know, is eating the Sagittarius dwarf galaxy. And in five billion years, if the models are correct, it's going to be eating the two Magellanic clouds. And in five or six billion years ago, we and the Andromeda galaxy are going to eat each other and become a single giant elliptical galaxy. So, you know, galaxy formation is not over. But galaxy formation proceeds by galaxies eating smaller things. Those smaller things can be smaller galaxies like the Magellanic clouds or even smaller galaxies or maybe just little lumps of gas that haven't had time to turn into stars yet. Okay, so galaxies like the Milky Way are still forming, and galaxies are falling in from outside the local sphere of influence. So they came from outer space. Okay, 
So what about the magical clouds? Have they always been around? Have they been orbiting the Milky Way? Or did they come from outer space? You probably see in, in the, um, the movie I just showed you that probably I'm going to say they came from outer space. Okay, well, one hint is that the Magellanic Clouds are pretty gas-rich. And there's actually a trend in all galaxies that the gas-rich galaxies that are orbiting or near a big guy, the gas-rich guys are far away, which means they haven't been hurt too bad by the big guy, and the gas-poor guys are, near, are close. But the Magellanic Clouds are close and they're gas-rich. So they're weird. Or something else is going on. Okay, so now we're going to skip from a semi-historic thing, and we're just going to talk about some observations that my collaborators and I and my enemies have been making over the last few years. So, you know, by definition, any observation my enemies make, we need to think twice about, and any one I make is probably pretty good. Um, so, we're going to give you a modern view of the clouds. Okay, first the size. Um, I guess I skipped very rapidly over that thing and never even stopped. But the two Magellanic clouds both have hydrogen in them and they have the Magellanic stream coming out like this. But actually, they live in a halo of hydrogen gas. So even in between the clouds, there's hydrogen. If there's enough hydrogen in one place, you can start making stars. Okay, so if the Magellanic stream were pulled out because of the Milky Way tides, there ought to be star streams. Because... Gravity is gravity. Tides are just, you know, GMM over R cubed. Just, that's how it is. And it doesn't care whether the mass of the thing being pulled out is a gas cloud or a star. So if, the, if there's hydrogen clouds, this stream came from tides, then the, there ought to be star streams. No one in 40 years or 50 years of looking has ever found a star stream associated with the Magellanic stream or even nearby. So something's weird there. You can wave your hands and find ways around it. Um, and there are some you know, good, clever ways around it that may even be right. Okay, now there's a potential observational problem for how big the Magellanic clouds are, which is namely, you saw in those initial photos, the first photo was like 30 degrees by 40 degrees. And remember, a degree is 1,000 parsecs or 3,000 light years. Well, until very recently, taking a photograph with modern detectors, you could maybe cover a quarter of a square degree. If the Magellanic cloud system is 40 degrees on a side, or 50 degrees on a side, 50 squared is 2,500. So you'd have to have 2,500 square degrees worth of photos. And if it's a quarter square degree, 2,500 times four, you'd have to have 10,000 photos from the world's largest telescopes in order to do that. So no one can do that. They're not going to give you. And in our project, which I'll be telling you about a bit, we were taking two fields per night. So that means 5,000 nights. That means 15 years of every night on the telescopes. That means 30 years of every dark night. That means 45 years of every clear dark night. And I don't know why, but they won't give me that time. So, you know, we have to be, we're looking at the Magellanic Clouds, at least until the near future. We're looking at them with little data points here and there, and we're trying to piece together a big general story. 
Okay, so let me jump ahead for a second to the near future into the year 2022. In the near future, I'm part of a team of about 30 or 40 astronomers, very unwieldy, that, except I was looking at someone's paper today and it said, you know, Joe Blow plus Joe Blow plus Joe Blow plus 843 co-authors. It's a physics paper, a particle physics paper. So 30 or 40 doesn't seem so awful. But we're undertaking something called the SMASH survey with the new dark energy camera at the four meter telescope at Cerro Tololo. So it's just like the four meter telescope up on Kitt Peak, except it's in Chile. It's owned by the National Science Foundation. It's owned by the United States government. And people like me get to apply for time to use it. And um, we're trying to do about 300 square degrees. Notice that 300 is not 10,000 or, you know, 5,000. 300 is a small fraction of that. And deck cam covers two square degrees in a shot, and we expose in five colors for a total exposure time of about two hours per field. And I'll show you in a second. And in the year 2022, on my 70th birthday, science operations will start. I'm lobbying for this. It's supposed to start in early 2022, and son of a gun, I'm going to be 70 early 2022. So what could be better than starting science operations on my birthday? And LSST, which is the mirror was um, made here in the mirror lab, LSST is going to cover the entire southern sky within some limits. Um, and if you think about it this way, it can cover every piece of sky every three days. That's not the observing cadence, but that gives you an idea for how different it is. And it observes about 10 square degrees in a shot. And those shots are roughly 40 seconds apiece. So you can really add up the sky coverage. Okay, so here's the SMASH survey. And what we have here are a couple of ways of thinking about it. This is basically longitude on the sky in some funky coordinates. And this is latitude in the sky in Magellanic coordinates. So it's twisted with respect to normal stuff. Here's um, the Magellanic cloud um, gas. And the dark energy survey people are observing these fields. And here's the Milky Way. And we're observing all of these fields to try to put together a 10% or 7% filling factor picture of the clouds. So, you know, the, the more pictures you have, the less some sneaky tendril or arm or something can sneak out of, you just missed it. Okay, and this, we're gonna get to this in a bit, this is Gratina Vestal's simulation of, you know, what the strip stars look like. But, this is going to take 40 nights on the CTL 4 meter, and they're willing to give a team of 40, 40 nights over three years. And that's still only going to give us 10% of what we want. Or, you know, 10% of if we were one of the top 1% of wage earners in the United States, that's what, you know, we could get. Well, we can't get that. Okay, this is a dark energy camera photo. 62 CCDs, I'll tell you a little bit more about the CCDs in a second. And this is the small Magellanic cloud right here. So finally, we can take that inner part, and as I said, the clouds are bigger than that, but that inner part in one shot. So let me just tell you a little about this camera. It's really cool. A single deck cam image is about three square degrees. Remember, the moon is a half a degree across, so it's a quarter of a square degree. 
So you could fit um, 9, 10, 9, that's 4, 30, 36 moons in one, that photo I just showed you. Okay, so the DeckCam Imager has 62 CCDs, 500 plus megapixels. Each pixel is 0.2 arc seconds on the sky. It's 15 microns in physical size. And that's an area per pixel 10 to 100 times larger than on your cell phone, on your camera or your cell phone. And your cell phone sensor is roughly a quarter of an inch on a side with one micron pixels. A full frame CCD is roughly the size of a piece of film, 24 by 36 millimeters. But this deck cam thing is 20 inches on the side of silicon. Each CCD costs about $100,000, and they're optimized for low light level um, being operated at cryogenic temperatures to beat down the noise of the detector. You don't notice the noise in your camera unless you take 30-second exposures of the sky because the nice people at Canon and the other companies do an enormous amount of processing before they stick it up on your screen. So there's a pretty smart computer inside your, t your cell phone. And your cell phone actually can't be used at cryogenic temperatures, um, and it has too much dark current. So you can't just take cell phones and string them together. You know, cell phone CCDs are really cheap because they make a billion of them a day. But you can't do that. You've got to pay $100,000 a piece for these. Um, CCDs. The camera alone, when all was said and done, was something like five or ten million dollars. Okay, well, so we're trying to map out the size of the Magellanic Clouds. And, you know, one of the ways you can think of doing that is counting the light, right? So you take a photo and it's deeper and you can draw a bigger circle. And that means the Magellanic Clouds were bigger than you thought. Another way you can do it is count stars. Well, there was a group in Virginia who used special techniques to identify red giant stars. And they could then use the red giant stars to um, discover that the clouds extend to very large distances, something like three or four times what we've been talking about so far. So, you know, yet the, the clouds are bigger than we thought, and I'll make that more quantitative in a minute. And, of course, maybe they've been stretched by the Milky Way to boot. So maybe stars aren't in the same place that they used to be. So this is what those people found. The central region here is this photo. So here's the bar of the LMC. And, you know, the photos I've been showing you maybe go out to kind of like that. And these contours that they drew here of the very, very, very small number of distant stars come from all of these blue and red squares. So they don't have anywhere near full coverage. But they were able to make a coherent picture that there's a very large structure surrounding both Magellanic clouds. So there are more stars in this region here than there are way out here in the control field. Not very many more, but there are more. Okay, a group that I have been working with for 10 or so years, which is the predecessor of the SMASH survey, used the Mosaic 2 camera, which is the predecessor to DeckCam, the Mosaic 2 camera on the Serotolo 4 meter, which only did a quarter of a square degree at a time, to do a 1% fill factor survey of the Magellanic Clouds. So either we were, you know, you know, we got what we got, and if we're clever enough, what we got can tell us a good story. Um, well, we're trying to understand the size and what's been happening to the Magellanic Clouds. 
First, I have to remind you what an HR diagram is. Oh, this is a picture in hydrogen light. This is the Milky Way. This is the large Magellanic cloud. This is the small Magellanic cloud. And all these little squares are the fields we got. And you can see those squares don't exactly cover densely all that area. But you can see we're going out to really large distances, and we're able to track both Magellanic clouds out to really, really large distances. In fact, we're able to, you know, in this scale, we are able to track the large Magellanic cloud out to about there and the small Magellanic cloud out to about there. They almost touch to the limits that we can measure. So this is an HR diagram. So what you're plotting here is the brightness of the star on the y-axis. So this is really bright. This is really faint down here. And the color of the star, this is really red. This is really blue. So color of the star on the x-axis and brightness on the y-axis. And this is you know, the sacred diagram of stellar astronomy. And what I have here is HR diagrams of a field seven degrees north of the LMC. Remember, we're talking about the LMC only being three or four degrees across. The HR diagram of one nine degrees across away, 11 degrees away, and 12 and a half degrees away. In the seven degree field, it's pretty easy. You see a very big main sequence, so stars like the sun, and then you see stars becoming red giants, and these stars here are burning helium in their middle, not hydrogen. But anyway, just imagine that picture and start blurring, you know, taking away 10% of those stars, 20% of those stars, making it fainter and fainter. And that's what you got here. Look at this same general idea, but less stars. The same general idea, but less stars. The same general idea, but even less stars. So here on the main sequence, right there, we still see stars 12 and a half degrees away. In fact, we see stars out to 16 degrees. So 16 is a whole lot bigger than three or four or five. And so what we do with these data, one of the things we do is we actually put down a box and they're called cleverly counting boxes. We put down a box that looks like this and we count the stars in that box. And you can see that we would get more stars in the box here, more stars in the box here and more stars in the box here. So we're counting stars as a method of determining the brightness of the LMC to levels where you can't record it from, you know, in diffuse light on your camera. Let me skip that. This is what we get. This is the density law, so how fast the counting drops off. And it's how far we are from the center of the LMC in degrees and the natural log of the number of stars. And you can see in this, the reason we pick these units is we can, we can fit a straight line. And towards the center of the LMC, seven degrees away, which I call towards the center, but in everything else I showed you so far is way the heck out. So lots of stars here getting fainter and fainter and fainter and fainter and fainter. But it falls on this nice straight line with not too much deviation. Falling on this nice straight line means this is an exponential, which is what we expect disks of galaxies to look like. So another way of saying that is the large Magellanic cloud, at least to the north, is perfectly smooth and undisturbed exponential out to 16 degrees. So 
the Magellanic Clouds, the large Magellanic Cloud, hasn't been kicked very hard by the Milky Way. It's fairly undisturbed. Now, the small Magellanic Cloud, if you do the same thing, it gets disturbed at much smaller radii. So something has really beaten up the small Magellanic Cloud in all directions that you look. But the large Magellanic Cloud is pretty much untouched. And that kind of makes you wonder, how could it be pretty much untouched to be so darn close to the Milky Way for the last 13 billion years? Okay, now the next thing I'm going to tell you about is um, some observing that Knut Olsen across the street at NOAO did. For, you know, he, had a, he made an interesting discovery while working on another interesting project. I'm only going to tell you the interesting discovery part. So Knut did a spectroscopic survey in the Magellanic Clouds. So in things like my data, he took the stars that were, say, red giants, and he got spectra of them. From spectra, we can get their velocities, and from spectra, we can get their chemical compositions. He took these spectra, and of course, you're, you know, the Magellanic Clouds are rotating, and they're sort of inclined 30 degrees with respect to us, and they're rotating kind of like that. But they, so you would expect it to be a smooth, ordered rotation which there is. So you would expect one part of the LMC to be rotating more away from us than the other part, as, you know, I, it's hard to do as it goes around like that. And let me just tell you what he concluded. He concluded that 10% of the stars don't make any sense, that 10% of those stars came from outer space. And that outer space, in fact, is the small Magellanic Cloud. So hence, the SMC is everywhere. And this is the diagram that Knut made, one of you know, many in his paper. And this is a spatial map of the Magellanic Clouds. And these little dots are all the stars he observed. You subtract away the average speed of the Magellanic Clouds towards us away from us. So zero would be you know, right smack in the middle. Red means it's moving away from us a little bit compared to the average. Blue means it's moving towards us a little bit compared to the average. And you can see that the vast majority of stars are red on this side and blue on this side. That means that this piece of the Magellanic Clouds is, compared to the center, moving a little bit towards us. And this piece of the Magellanic Clouds is moving a little bit away from us. So it's rotating in you know, that kind of way. But you can see that up here, there's a bunch of blue stars, and down here, there's a bunch of red stars. They don't belong. And in fact, if you sort of you know, do a back of the envelope calculation of what a star escaping or being pushed out of the small Magellanic Cloud and making its way in this direction, what speed it would have, that's about what you get. So 5 or 10% of all the stars in the Magellanic Clouds, the large Magellanic Cloud, came from the small Magellanic Cloud. So the idea here would be, we've got the large cloud here, the small cloud here. Somehow the small cloud has really gotten beaten up and there are stars from the small cloud coming out like this and small stars from the small cloud coming out like this. Some of them are in front or behind the large Magellanic Cloud and Knut found them. So the small Magellanic Cloud is really getting beaten up and um, you know, there is an interaction. Okay, well, we've been working on a project, and I know I'm running late, so I'll 
speed up a little bit. We've been working on a project to see if the macho microlensing stars can be explained by some SMC stars. When there's a lot of words to define here. Gravitational lensing, Einstein showed in 1915 that gravity can act like a pair of glasses and focus light or bend light. A macho is a euphemist, is, is probably a non-existent thing that stands for massive compact halo object. It was an attempt to explain dark matter. Microlensing is what happens when you have a star here and a star here and another star comes in front of it. It's kind of like using a megaphone if you're a cheerleader. You know, if you talk like this, you're at a certain volume, but if you block the sound that wants to go this way with your hands, it gets louder. And so what microlensing does is it changes the brightness of stars for a period of time. And we're trying to see if the, if the stars that did do, go through this lensing, if these stars can be explained by a model in which the small Magellanic Cloud wraps behind the large Magellanic Cloud. And the answer is sort of yes. Some of those stars do have the same Knud Olsen-like wrong velocities and we're still working. So this is strong lensing. I just wanted to remind you what lensing is. This is a cluster of galaxies and all of these arcs are galaxies in the far distant part of the universe that got bent by the gravity of this cluster of galaxies. So those are gravitational arcs, that's strong lensing. But when you have, say, two stars going in front of each other, what happens is the brightness of one of the stars goes up for a while. So we're watching this star, it's rock steady, rock steady, rock steady, rock steady, rock steady, rock steady, and then something goes up in brightness, back down, and for the rest of time, rock steady, rock steady, rock steady, rock steady. And this has exactly the shape you would expect for Einsteinian gravitational lensing. And they found a bunch of these in the Magellanic Cloud, something like 10. And you can't explain why there should be 10 unless you invoke something weird. And the weird thing we're trying to invoke is what we're now learning, that the, Magellanic, the small Magellanic Cloud has been ripped to various shreds and one of the shreds is behind the LMC. So the last idea is in the mid-2000s, Kali Vialo, who was a grad student at Harvard at the time, and her colleagues measured the sideways motion of the Magellanic Clouds. The, th the thing about galaxies is they're far away, and it's really easy to measure the motion towards you or away from you, because you can do that with spectroscopy, but the motion this way or this way is really hard because you've got to wait for the thing to move. And with Hubble Space Telescope, she was actually able to do that and what she does, once you get the sideways motion, we'll call it the proper motion, once you get the sideways motion and the towards you and away from you motion, you know the orbit. And the measurement she made of the sideways motion is too big to be in that orbit I told you a long time ago, once every two billion years going round and round, can't be done. And Gertina Bessler, who's now a, a our newest professor here at Stewart, showed that the most likely interpretation is that the large Magellanic Cloud and small Magellanic Cloud are falling in for the first time. And, you know, that kind of bothers the kind of people who have been thinking about this as being a very quiet, happy place with things just orbiting each other. And she can reproduce many of the features like the Magellanic Stream in this first infall scenario. 
And what she finds is that, you know, two billion year orbits are almost definitely ruled out. And you can fudge around with the mass of the Milky Way and fudge around with the mass of the Magellanic Clouds and maybe get an orbit. But basically the answer is they're coming in for the first time. They're near the Milky Way for the first time. Well, that clears up some of these issues if the measurement is correct. And let me just show you her movie. She starts the two Magellanic Clouds orbiting each other, coming into the Milky Way for the first time here. And now they're here, so the Milky Way's up here somewhere. And this big streamer and this big streamer got stripped off. So the Magellanic Clouds used to be way out here somewhere in outer space. And this is kind of where they are when they feel the Milky Way for the first time. But they're interacting with each other. And so basically all of the damage to the small cloud turns out to be the dance the two clouds are doing around each other. So you don't even need the Milky Way. The Milky Way is superfluous in this story, even though we thought it was the most important thing. We, the assembled people of the last hundred years. Okay, so here's my last slide. Here's where we are today. We have evidence that the LMC and SMC made the current structure by interacting with each other, that the LMC is relatively untouched by the SMC or the Milky Way, that we can explain Knud Olsen's counter-rotating stars and the Macho results by this new result. In 2022, we all have mapped out the entire Magellanic system to faint depths. And there we have evidence that the LMC and SMC are coming in for the first time. And finally, get to the Southern Hemisphere. They're really cool. Thank you very much, Ed. I, I will take time for one or two questions, if we have any, for Professor Olszewski. Yes, question right here. Um, since these are galaxies, do they either or both have a large black hole somewhere in it? That's an, so what he said, in case you didn't hear him, is everyone knows that galaxies have black holes in their centers. And that's true down to some limit. In fact, there was a news release last week or so that Anil Seth found a big monster um, black hole in a little galaxy that ought not to have black holes. So the answer is they probably, we have no evidence that they have massive black holes in their center and we actually kind of don't expect them to. But um, they do have dark matter because that's kind of the definition of a galaxy is an object that has dark matter. Globular clusters don't have dark matter. We can measure that, and small galaxies do. Um, so the radio astronomers have never found anything that behaves like any kind of a black hole. I, that's not true. They have found stellar mass black holes in the Magellanic Clouds. So a 20 solar mass black hole orbiting another star. But they've never found 100,000, million, 10 million. Is there possible evidence that the uh, Magellanic clouds themselves may have ca cannibalized other smaller galaxies in their prior history. Well, that's a, that's a great question. And you would think from the video I showed, the movie I showed you of, you know, littler um, fleas eating, little, having littler fleas, that yes, that has to be the case. Um, but to date, we haven't found any comet tails, if you will, of smaller galaxies that got eaten by bigger galaxies in the Magellanic Clouds. Now, you can do a scaling argument, which is if the Milky Way ate a certain number, the Magellanic Clouds being one-tenth the size, ate one-tenth that number, et cetera. So there's a, there's a time to which you get to maybe one 
meal in the whole history of that galaxy. So we haven't found them, but it had to have happened, we think. I mean, if, if it didn't happen, you know, the current models we have for how galaxies form are wrong. Question here. Does this new model, does this new model say whether or not there should be a star stream associated with the Magellanic stream now? And if so, is one way to, could you search for it with radio telescopes as well as optical? Well, remember, radio telescopes are good at measuring gas and optical telescopes are good at measuring stars. So you probably should look at it with an optical telescope. The, it depends. I mean, it depends on the initial conditions. Gertina's model says that the SMC got stripped from, you know, it's easier to pull things from the outside than from the inside. And the, the outside of the SMC was stripped when it didn't have very many stars, so we don't expect them. Now, that's ginning the model in order to get the non-result that we have right now. But if you ask a slightly different question, which is, should we be looking for these streams still? The answer is yes. And in fact, I mean, if you remember what I said at the end of the talk, we see lots of sheets of small Magellanic cloud stars in various places in the Magellanic system that we didn't expect. So maybe those are they. All right, I would like to invite you to attend our next lecture, which is two weeks from tonight, October the 13th at 7.30. Uh, Megan Ryder, who is one of our graduate students. Now, we usually don't have our graduate students give these public talks, but Megan's almost ready to defend her thesis. So she's almost done, and she's an amazing speaker. So I, I had to invite her. And she's going to talk about the tumultuous youth of stars. Um, I will stamp student assignments down here. Please visit the telescope. It's open for your viewing pleasure. And let's thank Professor Olszewski one more time.